everybody. Well, thanks so much for tuning in to this edition of Let's Be Blunt with Montel. And I'm so excited to have the guest that we have on the day. But before I introduce her, I just want to talk a little bit about what's the state of cannabis and what's been going on around the country since our election. And a lot of us know that, you know, though we've been arguing over who the winners and losers are from the presidential standpoint, the winner clearly in this last election was cannabis nationwide. Because we had four states literally go ahead and vote in either medical or you know, adult use cannabis. And I think everybody, you know, sighed a big sigh of relief thinking, oh my goodness, we must be headed in the right direction. But a recent article came out that makes me think that maybe we aren't headed in the right direction. I want to read a little bit about this to you right now. One marijuana arrest occurs every 58 seconds in the United States of America. Now, you might think the cannabis legalization would lead to a significant decrease in marijuana related arrests, but that hasn't been the case. Not only has marijuana arrests initially increased as, uh, increased as states have legalized the plant, but there are still more people being arrested for marijuana possession than for all other violent crimes combined in the United States. When we talk about violent crimes, we're talking about you know, everything from domestic abuse to rape and to murder. And yet there are still thousands more arrested for substances safer than alcohol. Now, marijuana arrests for the first time and history declined a little bit from 2015, but still, this last year, in 2019, we saw 545,000 marijuana arrests compared to 663,000 in 2018 and 659,000 in 2017. And cannabis toll from 2019 represents 35% of all drug-related arrests. Alarmingly, 92% of those arrests have been for simple possession. And what is going on here? I mean, as much as we think that we are, are supporting the initiatives that, you know, allow doctors and patients and individuals to have private conversations with their doctors, allow them to, you know, prescribe or to recommend medications. We live right now at a time, just like we've been living for the last four years, at a time where science and research is thrown out the window. And people just hold on to these draconian, outdated, ridiculous, I, I'm not going to say morals, the ridiculous tenets that they believe that there's something wrong with cannabis. And we know for a fact that there has been so much research, especially, you know, I'll try my best here and let's be blunt my tell to make sure I bring you some of the most up-to-date research available. We know that in the last month there's been peer-reviewed you know, published documents that unequivocally show the efficaciousness of all of the very component parts of the cannabis plants, especially when it comes to flavonoids. We've now found out, you know, 100% that flavonoids may have a 20 to 30 times more effective uh, anti-inflammatory quality than some of the medications that we are prescribed and some of the things that we buy across the counter. We know for a fact that as we do more and more research, and as I say more and more research, though we've done so much research over the last 50 years, I don't know how much more research needs to be done, but you know, over the last 50 years, we've proven that things like the terpenes, you know, the fats, the lipids, you know, the cannabinoids, we've discovered that there are so many more cannabinoids than we even thought were there 20 years ago, 30 years ago, when Dr. Mashulam uh, was doing research funded by the United States government. 
research that led the United States government to, you know, I was in a conversation yesterday in South Carolina with a senator there who's got a bill in the South Carolina to try to get the state to finally reapprove medical cannabis. And in that discussion, you know, the, the senator brought up with me the fact that, you know, so many people, you know, in the state, especially law enforcement, say, well, we can't do anything that's contrary to the government of the United States rules. And since this is a Schedule One drug, we can't do anything. And I said, well, if you're really going to be doing things that are proven by the federal government, or if you're going to take the same stand as the federal government, then you should take the stand that the federal government took in 1999 when it pl- applied for, then gave itself a patent in 2002 for CBD. And that patent is 6603507 1B. Uh, you should look that up. And in that abstract, our government stated back then, this is over 20 years ago, stated unequivocally that they believed that cannabis was an efficacious medication that could be used for varied forms of antioxidative or uh, oxidative um, uh, decline and neurological disease. It even stated in this abstract that it found that cannabis was a neuroprotectant. And I've had people say to me, well, Montel, people don't want to hear about that. Yeah, they do. Because if you're going to sit out of one side of your mouth, you're going to say, well, the federal government doesn't believe that it works. You know, like we've had a couple of these idiots that have said they're lying. They're lying directly to you, right straight to your face. That same federal government is the same government that has been spending money every single year doing research on cannabis. And one of the biggest waste of time is because they continue to fund research to try to find the detrimental effects of cannabis when all their research continues to find all of the efficaciousness involved in cannabis. So it's really kind of this ridiculous oxymoron, which leads us to why I even started a discussion with the fact that all over America, in states with legal legal cannabis laws, arrest for cannabis is going up. Now, how is that happening? It's happening because I think we, the masses, and I'm preaching to a choir here, let's be blunt, but we who support this so much are doing what we've done for the last 50 years, sitting around in silence, just having conversations with the choir and not having conversations with your congressman and your senator. You know, I know a lot of people are sitting back at home right now thinking, oh, well, you know, I know President Biden and and Kamala Harris, they're going to help us out. No, they aren't. Sit there and be as stupid as you want to be, but they're not. About six months ago, President-elect Biden stated unequivocally that he still believed that cannabis was a gateway drug, folks. This is a man who said, I'm going to let science lead the way. Well, if you're going to let science lead the way, then read the science, mister. And excuse me, in the state of California, where Kamala Harris was the attorney general, since there have been legalization laws on the books in her entire term there, every single year, arrests for cannabis possession violations went up. And don't believe the hype, folks. Decriminalization is not what we need. Decriminalization still leaves the stigma. It says this is a criminal activity that we're going to lessen the penalties for. It doesn't say that this isn't a criminal activity, which we know it is not. The rest of the world understands this. The entire world understands this. That's the reason why the world has been turning against the 1963 treaty that was signed to ban 
you know, the exploitation and trade in hemp. Spain, Colombia, Argentina, Mexico, Mexico, you know, uh, uh, the EU. Even China is going to start getting into the market by growing massive amounts of hemp that they will then deluge in the world. And you know that their practices in growing are not as efficacious as other places around the planet. So are you going to buy some CBD that you get from a, from a made in China? What are you, crazy? And I'm sorry, I'm on a little bit of a tirade here today, but I, I got angered when I read this article. You know, 500,000 arrests for cannabis possession? Are you kidding me? Every poll that you see, I, and you know, I can't, I'm, I could sit here and go back through my notes and find, you know, the names of every one of the pollsters. And there have been so many polls, one done almost every single month. The numbers are staggering. The country believes that we should have medical cannabis, period. Those numbers are as high in some places as 81%. In the state of North Dakota, which is really, I'll tell you another one, it just blows my mind that there is a move afoot right now by prohibitionists in that state, South Dakota, sorry, to overturn the will of the people. The people voted November 9th or November 3rd and said, we want to have cannabis by 54%. And now there's a, a, a move, a push, or being pushed in South Dakota that says that, um, you know, they want to overturn the amendment. And this is being backed by Governor Noam using state money, using tax dollars to go against the will of the people. Now, remember, this is also the same idiot who wanted to put Donald Trump's face on Mount Rushmore. I'm just saying. How long are we going to be quiet? How long are we going to sit back and say, it's okay for you to control my thoughts process? I am appalled uh, by the fact that we have so many so-called activists in our ranks who are sitting silent right now. But one of them is with us today and she's not silent. As a matter of fact, she's been doing everything she can to make sure that you get the education you need, get the facts that you need to understand that we're not talking about something that's snake oil. We're talking about something that is scientifically proven to be efficacious. We're talking about something that other countries are implementing because they recognize the value of the medicine. And whether you want to argue with me and say, well, Montel, I don't have a problem with medicinal marijuana. I just don't like that recreational thing. Well, excuse me. Let me just explain something to you. The majority of states where there is medicinal or recreational, the price of the recreational is cheaper because they put some ridiculous tax on top of medical cannabis. And so people who literally don't even know that they've probably sought out this plant because they have an underlying medical reason that they won't even acknowledge themselves. You know, medical reason is relaxation. Medical reason is being able to reduce your stress. Medical reason is being able to sleep well. Medical reason is being able to, you know, um, be able to deal with your PTSD. And especially right now when we're living in a time where you know, everybody's talking about a pandemic of a virus. Well, you better start thinking about the pandemic of mental illness in America over the next two years as we try to recover. The number of people who are literally shaken in their boots 
with the same form of PTSD that people suffer from from being in combat situations or being in traumatic injury situations. That's happening now, today. And we know that cannabis helps in that situation. We know that there are people sitting at home that are suffering, afraid to go to the hospital because they're afraid to contract the virus if they walk in the door. Some of those people have already found out that, hey, you know what? I didn't realize that this stuff called cannabis has been making me feel 20 times better than taking that shot of Jack every night. But again, I'm preaching to the choir. But it's time for the choir to start singing loud. Start getting up, standing up in public and singing at the top of your lungs. Stop the stupid. Take the patient off the battlefield. And you do so with education. Contrary to the popular belief that knowledge is somehow some sort of sin, knowledge is what we should all be living for. You know, to, to wake up one day and learn something to make your day better is probably the best gift that God gave us. The ability to learn from our mistakes, to learn from what we study and make changes. You know, how many dumb lemmings do you see that just keep running off a daggone cliff generation after generation after generation? That's what we are starting to become. Lemmings running off a cliff where the information is right there before our eyes. Our guest today graduated from Brown University with a specialized biology, biology degree in medicinal plant research. She was named Portland's best bud tender in 2016 and has been featured in everything from Newsweek as one of Weed's leading women, but all kinds of magazines all over the country have extolled the virtues of her knowledge. She's the co-founder of Eminent Consulting Firm in Portland, Oregon, where she works as a cannabis educator and industry consultant. Please welcome Emma Chasen. Let's be blunt. Emma, thanks so much for being a part of the show today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm really excited to be here. I mean, you know, I'm excited. You know, you hear my tirade. What do you think? I'm so sorry, but that I made you wait for a few seconds to get that out. But you know, every now and then, I just gotta say my what's on my mind. Yeah, and you hit on so many important points. I mean, I I completely agree with you that oftentimes, especially as an educator around the scientific evidence around cannabis, the the biggest kind of gripe or pushback that I hear from people is that, well, we don't have enough research. We don't have enough research. So we can't say anything. It's like, actually, THC specifically is one of the most researched compounds on the planet. And just like you said, the federal government now has a patent, has had a patent out for CBD. They have a pharmaceutical. Yeah. Years. As a matter of fact, for a lot of those people that don't know, the patent expired last year. I'm still trying to get the exact information, but I believe that the government extended their own patent. Yep. Yep. And now have a pharmaceutical drug, Epidiolex, that is CBD dominant. And they're pushing legalization efforts forward for low THC, high CBD, because it's in their best interest. And they know that this plant has potential. And yet we are still seeing such high criminalization rates, such high incarceration rates because of the racist war on drugs, because of systemic violence. And it is 
harrowing and continues to be disgusting to see that in states that have legal programs, whether they be adult use or medical, in states that have now, due to COVID, designated cannabis as an essential business, we're still seeing Black and brown people statistically at higher rates than white people being criminalized and incarcerated for cannabis use, for cannabis possession. That is not okay. That's where the industry itself needs to get its priorities together. The activists within the industry, we need to get our priorities together to go to congressmen, to go to people in the government and say, you know what? If we're going to designate cannabis as essential, then we need to make it a priority to expunge all past cannabis convictions from people who have that on their record. We need to free people who are incarcerated for cannabis crimes. We need to give back to the communities that have been so devastated by the war on drugs. And we need to do that first before we can reap any of the vast economic benefits that are now coming out of cannabis. So, I mean, that that is a one huge priority that the industry needs to get itself together. And then two, as far as education um, and, and science, we, like you said, in the last four years have been in this horrible, surreal kind of state where science is constantly in question and where people are actually denying science. And that is such a disservice on so many fronts, but especially in the context of this beautiful medicinal plant that has huge therapeutic value, huge therapeutic potential, and such low risk for people. We're doing a disservice to patients and people everywhere by limiting access to this plant. And for what? Why? And, you know, honestly, when you say for what, for why is because, you know, it takes away a tool out of the arsenal of those who are as racist as they can be to ensure that they can continue to enslave people of color. Yep. Hard to say it that way, but honestly, I believe that it was just done this way as an enslavement tool because we've recognized if we look back in time to 1937 and go forward, 80% of those who have been incarcerated over all of those years have been people of color. It's been a way for a police officer to you know, walk down the streets of Wall Street and stop someone and say empty your pockets if they find weed. They say, look, go home and throw it out away and don't do it anymore. But then you walk down the streets of Harlem and you ask somebody to answer, open their pockets and they say, oh, I see what you got. You're going to jail. This has been a tool that's been used to keep collectively brown people down. It has been literally allowed to be distributed in brown and black communities just solely for the purpose of ensuring that they can get a rest in those communities. If we opened up all of the recordings from the Nixon administration, we'd recognize that, you know, Nixon made it a point himself to ensure that inner cities around the country were inundated with drugs, not only to subdue the masses to see if they could control those protesting for equal rights, but to give them an opportunity to have an additional arrest tool. We don't want to talk about truth. Truth is out the window these days. Just like we don't talk, if you look at the fact that, you know, we had 27 senators out of 240 something that were Republican that acknowledged the fact that there is a person named President-elect Joe Biden. The rest of them deny that he's even been, he's the president-elect, excuse me? And you wonder, where is America going? I, I, I don't want to get off. Let's stay on cannabis and stay on track. 
let me back up a little bit. And what brought you to the world of cannabis? Yeah. So I didn't want to touch cannabis growing up. I was very much myself, kind of a puritanical mindset, reaped in, steeped in negative stigma around cannabis. I grew up in a rather poor to middle-class suburb on Long Island, New York, went to a public high school. And the only people who I saw using cannabis were delinquents, degenerates, whatever you want to call them, kind of smoking behind the, the dumpster at the bagel shop across the street. And I saw that and I was like, oh, I don't want that. So this, this substance is only for people who are lazy, stoners, whatever. Um, but Wait, Let me stop you for a second. But you grew up in a family that believed in Plant medicine history. As a matter of fact, on your mother's side of the family, they practice something that they call Italian folklore. Medicine was part of a tradition in your home. That didn't include cannabis? It didn't. It didn't. And we very much celebrated medicinal plants, but none of those medicinal plants were psychotropic. My family, they are Italian immigrants, and they were so scared of anything that would intoxicate you and change your your mindset. So yes, we use neem oil and oregano and chlorophyll. And we talked about flavonoids and phytonutrients. And we we went that route of kind of nutraceutical, naturopathic, preventative medicine. But cannabis was something that was, oh, that's not for us. Um, and so I, I fully believed that negative stigma until I got to Brown, where I saw some of the smartest people I've ever encountered, and they all were smoking weed. So that was my first kind of inclination where, okay, something is wrong with what I believed. If all of these people are engaging in consumption of this plant and they are reaping therapeutic benefits from it. They're able to focus more. They're able to reduce their anxiety. They're able to be more social. And nobody is um, nobody is seemingly having any negative effects from it. And simultaneously, when I was looking at my peers kind of engaging in this behavior, I also was taking a seminar called Botanical Roots of Modern Medicine, where for the first time, I really got to formally study, uh, especially psychotropic medicinal plants in relation to um, ayahuasca and other kind of ethnobotanical indigenous ceremonial use of the plant. And that was when I really began to feel comfortable personally exploring a relationship with cannabis and also academically beginning to study it a little bit more. And that just opened this Pandora's box for me of, oh my God, you know, things that we, we grow up demonizing or things that the government feeds us, such as don't do drugs, or even our family tells us um, we, we should believe. Sometimes those things are not true. And especially in the context of medicinal plants, historically being able to study how indigenous people so revered these plants and used them in a holistic ceremonial healing context that's what it flip switched. These are some of the same people who would uh, have a drink every night before you go to bed. Some of the same people who would, you know, don't don't think that there's anything wrong with, uh, you know, uh, having a little bit of the grape or potato, you know, uh, that has been turned into alcohol. But most people don't recognize. You said it. You know, you look back at Brown University and some of the smartest people that you knew. Well, when we look back locally in this country, we know that America was built on hemp. And America was built on the use of hemp. Uh, you know, when they, they took a look at Benjamin Franklin's pipe that they had had in the Smithsonian Institute and they scraped out the inside of it, they recognized that he was a marijuana user. And most of our forefathers were also. Remember, times were hard back then, folks. People do not understand this. We're talking about 1690. There were no toilets. 
You know, remember you went out into the woods and grabbed a couple of leaves to wipe your butt. Excuse me, I'm not being graphic, but you did. And, you know, there was no air conditioning. There was no heat, you know? So through six months out of the year, through the dead of the winter and through the dead of the summer, you were miserable. People weren't drinking water. You didn't go to the river and grab a bucket full of water and come back and pour yourself a glass. Heck no, because there was so much disease in that water that you either came back and you boiled it or you turned it into what they called back then just near beer, but but alcohol water. So even babies were consuming water that had two to four percent, two to three percent alcohol content. People were walking around all over the world, all over the United States of America. You know, whether you want to admit it or not, with a little bit of a buzz from the water they were drinking. And then at night, when you laid your butt down on a stump, are you kidding me? Didn't you think it felt a little bit better if you smoked that hemp cigarette? Hmm, it did, didn't it? Hmm. So it wasn't until, and, and you know, go back, uh, go to any library across America and look at newspapers in the 1800s and early uh, before Prohibition, before in the early 1900s, there were probably, you know, five pages of elixirs and tonics all formed from hemp, all formed from the cannabis plant that people understood and used. People were eating, not heated, but they were eating porridges made from hemp seed because we recognized very early on that the hemp plant is one of the most protein-laden seeds there is. So people were feeding their, what we now know, their endocannabinoid system, their endogenous cannabinoid system, feeding it with the cannabinoids that help to keep our bodies in sync. And it wasn't until, you know, 1937 when we decided to ban it that all of a sudden, straight out, everybody stopped eating hemp seed. Everybody stopped using the plant medicinally. And we wonder why we saw a century of the rise in autoimmune disease and other diseases that we had never seen before. So I'm sorry to, to digress on that, but I wanted to make sure I point out the note. When you talk about the fact that you're at Brown University and some of the smartest people you knew there, ladies and gentlemen, Albert Einstein, we know now, smoked marijuana. Hmm. Well, that's kind of strange to me. But come on, stop the most creative people on the planet utilized it on a regular basis. Because as you said, it, it, it literally helped them assuage some of their anxiety and helped open them up to their creative selves. But at the same time, now that we have medical science looking into what those compounds truly do, we start to understand that they have really unbelievable antioxidative effects they have unbelievable anti-inflammatory effects. And inflammation is really the root cause of 80% of disease. We've now found out that some of the components of a few of the cannabinoids and the flavonoids together actually restrict cancer cells from being able to form blood vessels. And we don't want to research this. It just drives me nuts. So again, I'm sorry, going back to you. So you're in college, you start using yourself, you start recognizing its efficaciousness. But then what made you decide to move this into, you know, a profession rather than a product agent? 
after graduation, I actually took a job in uh, the oncology industry. So I began to study cancer research. And I, I really thought that that could be my place to bring in cannabis. I mean, this was 2014, 2015. So we had some momentum in New England, where I was at the time about, you know, the, the therapeutic effects of medicinal cannabis. And just as you said, I mean, there is huge potential of cannabinoids, terpenes and flavonoids being to, being able to reduce tumor size, arrest the cell cycle, prevent cancer from returning, prevent cancer from, you know, ever developing. And I, I actually did have a professor from Brown who proposed a cannabis trial to the supervisor in my office. And she just kind of laughed at him, just laughed him out of the office. And that to me was the straw that broke the camel's back where I, I really had a light bulb moment of seeing this clearly and saying, oh, this industry, because it is an industry, prioritizes money. It does not prioritize the, the health of patients, the potential to help patients. And it's not it's not for me. And so I quit, packed up my my car, drove across the country and moved to Portland, sight unseen. And I, I very serendipitously arrived about a month before early onset of adult use sales in Oregon. And so I, I needed a job, got hired at a dispensary and found that I really had a knack for being able to explain cannabis to patients, to talk about cannabis science and Luckily, the dispensary where I landed very much empowered kind of the scientific exploration of cannabis. Um, but what I noticed while I was working in the industry on that kind of ground floor was that there was just such a lack of education. There was such a lack of education and training for industry professionals, for these bud tenders who are answering questions that doctors can't even answer, that are kind of informing and educating patients uh, around cannabis and its purported effects and to not train these people to kind of just put them out on the sales floor and, and give them directive of, oh, go sell weed is a disservice to the industry. It's a disservice to patients. It's a liability for businesses. And, and I saw this problem and I was like, you know what, we can't ethically evolve this industry if we don't start incorporating education, if we don't start making it a priority to educate not only industry professionals, but also lay enthusiasts, patients, consumers, so that they can get the most out of their cannabis medicine. And that's when I, I kind of fully branched off with this mission in mind to go out and be the bridge of scientific literature to be able to present that to people in a way that they can understand, in a way that was digestible, and, and really start providing the industry itself with educational resources rooted in science. Well, and like you, know, you were talking about 2014, where you were, you had this doctor, or, uh, one of your professors, you know, try to apply for a research grant. And what's really so disturbing to me about that is that I was in Israel in Dr. Mashulam's laboratory talking to Dr. Mashulam in 2011 um, about the research that the U.S. government was funding in Israel on cancer research. So five years, four years before you even, three years before you even thought about it, or your doctor was, or your, your professor was putting in for a grant, the U.S. government was already funding research, understanding the viability of cannabinoids as cancer agents. Let me do this. I'd love to take a break. Have you read recently Dr. Bonnie Goldstein's new book, that Cannabis is Medicine? I have it. I'll hold it up for you so you can see it. But you should go out and grab a copy of this. And I, I, I have yet to find a book that is this extensive 
with this much information. It's a, I don't the call it a Bible would be incorrect, but I think that it's it's a good starting place for so many people who want to get some knowledge and understand what's going on when it comes to plan. I I know that you're working on or you've been working on a lot of different things and and uh, your educational tutorial program we're going to talk about when we come back. I want to take a little break because I got to pay some bills. Um, and let's come back and start talking about, you know, some of the science that you agree with and some of the science that you kind of reject. Um, and I think you'll find if you read Dr. Wilson's book that you'll, uh, she agrees with you 100% with a lot of what you say. So I'm going to take a little break. You've been uh, tuned in today to Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Our guest today is Emma Chasen, who graduated from Brown University with a specialized degree in biology uh, and a degree in medicinal plant research. And she now runs an organization that is called Eminent Consulting, online cannabis education program. We're going to talk a little bit more about that, how you can be a part of that. And let me pay some bills. I'll be back right after this. Thanks so much for tuning in. Let's be blunt with Montel today. And our guest today is a graduate of Brown University. She specializes in a degree in medical medicinal plant research. And she's been named, was named, in 19, in 2016, Portland's best butt tender. That's the title that a lot of people would love to have. <laughs> and she's also been featured in Newsweek magazine, multiple magazines in the industry as one of Weed's leading women. She's the co-founder of Eminent Consulting Firm in Portland, Oregon, where she works as a cannabis educator and industry consultant. Emma, again, thank you so much for being a part of the show today. My pleasure. So happy to be here. Let's talk a little bit about Eminent, though. How can people find out more about it? And when did you start it? Sure. Yeah, I started it in June of 2018 with my business partner. So we've been in it for just over two and a half years now. Um, and really, the the priority of Eminent was to create educational resources, to create an online training program that anybody could sign on, join, and find accessible, engaging, and also be able to learn some science of this incredible plant. Um, Besides that, we also do a lot of kind of one-on-one -on -one business consulting with people who are emerging into industries or in established markets and really help them adopt more science-forward educational marketing strategies and also just help them with uh, craft development, business strategy, and the like. And if I'm sorry, I wanted to, to go, is it a course that they sign up for? Is it an online training course? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's an online training program all around the fundamental elements of cannabis science. So broken down into multiple courses on terpenes, cannabinoids, the endocannabinoid receptor system, uh, debunking the indica sativa myth, cannabis products, consumption methods, really everything that I wish that I had when I started out as a butt tender. Okay. And if people want to find out more information about that, where do they go? What's the website? Sure. Go to eminentconsultingfirm.com. Consultingfirm.com. Let's talk about debunking some of these, you know, misconceptions, you know, this whole misconception around indica and sativa, especially nowadays when, you know, the majority of plants have been so hybridized that, you know, there really is almost, you know, an indistinguishable way to really find differences in plants unless you actually look at its complete certificate of analysis and go through every single component individually. That's how you can start to distinguish. We'll talk a little bit about what you think about indica and sativa. Exactly. I mean, indica and sativa, which this is still contested by many experts, but for the purposes of this conversation, we can say that they are species of cannabis. So when they were defined in the 1700s, they were only defined by the way in which they grew. 
So they're morphological characteristics. And when I teach this subject, I always say that there's no account of Linnaeus who classified sativa kind of rolling up a joint of sativa, smoking it, and then making a note that it really energized him. Um, and so we can't really take a definition of species, which is rooted in how the plants grow and how they look and extrapolate that to also mean consistent effects. Now, even if at one point, the sativa species did correlate to a more energizing experience and the indica species correlated to a more sedative experience. Well, just as you said, at this point in time, everything has been so hybridized that most genetics on the cannabis market are hybridized. They are hybrids. They're a hybridization of indica and sativa genetics. And so the only way that really we can really know for sure how a, a cannabis variety might make someone feel is by looking at the certificate of, of analysis, by looking at those cannabinoids and terpenes to better be able to predict the kind of spirit experience that will ensue for a person. And even then, it is just a prediction. Everybody has their own unique endocannabinoid receptor system, their own unique physiology. I mean, set and setting also have such influence on the experience. Dose has influence on the experience. So we can, as industry I professionals... What you ate an hour ago, what you were drinking while you're doing it. There are so many things and variables that come into play that I, I sometimes when people say, yeah, I had this really great indica and it was, I, I feel like laughing in the face because how do you know? How exactly. Do you, and, you know, though you may express the way it made you feel at that moment in time, it may not make you feel that way tomorrow in another moment in time, because based on what you had for breakfast and how many oils you have in your stomach, and, you know, if it was something that's edible, if it's something that is a vaporable, you know, depends on what you literally put in your mouth hour before, because your mouth is coated with whatever that food oil is or whatever that is that's there, that's going to affect the absorption. So it's really kind of a tough one. I think I agree with you. I think that, you know, people should be doing a little bit. We should look at, there is 30 plus years of research into terpenes and what terpenes can do in other plants and acknowledge that though that's not a hundred percent perfect science it can give you an indication. If we knew crystal balls work, then everybody would have one. But I don't believe anybody's got a crystal ball yet that I've seen that works. Yes, we can We can at least move the conversation forward to get a little bit more predictability and consistency for patients and consumers, where instead of using indica and sativa, where, I mean, somebody's looking online and they see a designation of an indica, they automatically assume it's going to make somebody sleepy. And that's what they base their prediction off of or their recommendation off of. We can move forward and at least look to the certificate of analysis of that specific batch, say, okay, there's this unique combination of cannabinoids and terpenes. For most people, there is scientific evidence that suggests that it will produce or it may produce these subset of effects. So take with that, you know, what you will, but that at least allows us to be more scientific than what we've done in the past when using indica sativa. Absolutely. And, you know, again, let's talk a little bit more about the terpene and, 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 you know, there are hemp-based terpenes and there are food-based terpenes and food-based terpenes now, you know, depending on who you argue with and which scientists you talk to, and I love talking to scientists like yourself, you know, is mercine, mercine, mercine? Is the exact same molecule of mercine found in a mango, the exact same molecule of mercine that's found in a hemp plant, that's found in a sativa indica plant? Is it? I, I you know, I, I'm I'm asking especially because, you know, if we did, 
you know, full spectral analysis and spectrographic analysis are the exact same, you know, O's and C's and things in the same position for every single mercy molecule, is it? It's a great question. I think that the the molecular formula is the same, but the way that they're arranged in space or the way that they're arranged in the plant matrix can be different. And that means that they can interact in your body differently. And I think that it's such an important conversation, especially when we look to different concentrate or extract manufacturers using botanically derived terpenes or food grade terpenes and incorporating that into the final product that then gets, you know, put out on the cannabis market as this cannabis oil with, um, with added terpenes. And to me, that's not the same as if you took a plant, a cannabis plant, and you distilled down its terpenes and kind of left that as 100% pure cannabis extract, because the way that those molecules sit, it's going to be different. And that will lead to a different experience. Well, I think in some ways, though, that is where this industry should probably lead to. I've been, you know, formulating and and have uh, come up with some formulations of my own. I've got a degree in engineering from the Naval Academy. And, you know, I kind of find fancy myself, you know, a fairly decent formulator. And I found that, you know, when it comes to edibles and ingestibles, you know, a little augmentation with some other forms of plant-based terpenes seems to amplify the effect in a bioavailability way. So, is that proven? I can't prove it. How can I prove it? I can't prove it unless I do a double wide study with, you know, 4,000 patients and then elicit the responses from them over the four year period of time. And then I might be able to come up with some consensus, but it just made more sense to me that way, especially in an edible form, you know, um, though I believe that the terpenes that we find in the hemp plant, the terpenes that we find in a regular cannabis plant, are digestible. It just seemed to me when I started adding in just a little bit of food grade and looking specifically at specific terpenes, like I came up with a formulation for mine, you know, from everything from linalool to uh, um, pinene to using some beta carolophylline and some myrcene and using those at different ratios together adding that to a extract of THC and CBD seemed to change the way I responded to what I was thinking. And I formulated some, some products that I then put in the market suggesting to people that hopefully you can get the same response that I get. But again, we know that your body mass, your weight, your, you know, your fat uh, content in your body is going to determine how you digest this product. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that, especially when looking at digestion, our digestive systems, they're used to kind of clearing out different quote unquote toxic or um, kind of alien compounds to our bodies. And so when we formulate with other terpenes, it becomes less of a risk than if we're going to be actually heating and inhaling them. I also think that it's a really great idea or how I prefer to kind of amplify the terpene content to um, what I'm ingesting is by including other medicinal plants like a lemon balm or a lavender where you're going to get more limonene, you're going to get more linalool. It's in a plant matrix. So the, the actual, you know, oil cells that hold these terpenes haven't been distilled down. They haven't been synthesized in a lab and they'll give you that same 
same kind of um, entourage effect because you're making that salad. You're including cannabis with other botanical plants. And I've had great experience uh, upping my kind of therapeutic efficacy when doing that. Yeah, I think it works very well, again, in an edible way, but I'm not necessarily sure that I agree the same way when it comes to vaping, mm-hmm. eating it up and ingesting that and putting that in my lungs. I'm not necessarily sure that, you know, adding mercine from a mango is a really smart thing to do if I'm putting this into my lungs. Exactly. I'm not for sure, but it just doesn't seem right to me. Whereas you said, I think your body will filter itself. The natural, not necessarily the unnatural, because our endocannabinoid system in our body can't recognize things that are synthesized, and you know as well as it can naturally recognize the natural things. Let's talk a little bit about just do a little education across the board. When we were just talking a little bit about terpenes, and we know that individual terpenes have individual analyzed effects. Now we can look back and say that we know that beta carotene has a higher antioxidant effect has a higher anti-inflammatory effect, correct? Yep. So you want to make sure that, you know, if in fact, let's say for me, you know, at night when I go to sleep, I want to be able to relax and I want to be able to just settle down. I have MS. Inflammation is my nemesis. I want to bring that inflammation down as much as I can and as quickly as I can and have it be down and stay down. So I want to make sure that I utilize terpenes that have a little bit more of an anti-inflammatory effect, especially in the evening. Daytime, you know, I want to be a little bit more energized. And so we have pain and, you know, some of the other ones. And we know when we go down the list of terpenes, we can kind of identify things that might elicit response. Let's talk a little bit about the fats, the lipids, and, you know, the uh, some of the other phytocannabinoids. Yeah. I mean, so the, the cannabinoids, they're kind of the huge powerhouse. I talk about them as if um, we're in an analogy of kind of a car, you know, cannabinoids are the engine, they're driving that experience forward. And when they combine with terpenes, you get an incredible entourage or ensemble effect where you're just amplifying the therapeutic potential. So in the case of beta caryophylline, when you combine it with CBD, you are increasing your anti-inflammatory efficacy by multiples instead of just consuming beta caryophylline or just consuming CBD, right? When you put those two together, then you are multiplying your anti-inflammatory effect. Um, it's, it's the same kind of deal when we talk about different phytonutrients and even when we talk about flavonoids, where when you are combining the flavonoids and the terpenes and the cannabinoids, you're increasing your likelihood that you will experience an antioxidant effect or that you'll experience some kind of anti-cancer efficacy. And that's why I love whole plant medicine, why I prefer it. In fact, whether it be flour or I'm doing kind of a crude extraction with flour in olive oil or even alcohol, um, alcohol being the kind of premier solvent. If you're looking to pull out those different polyphenols that have incredible therapeutic value. I mean, as kind of a neuroprotectant, as um, a cardiovascular protectant, as just being able to help your body remain in balance and find balance when it is in a diseased state, that is really the power of cannabis, in my opinion. It comes from that full range of compounds that's present in the plant matrix. And we don't even know all of the compounds that are there yet. We've now predicted that there are over 500, but I mean, that's just a prediction at this point. We are still 
just kind of scratching the surface of the available compounds there. And I am of the mind that they are all working together to produce the most medically efficacious experience possible. And I think, you know, now in some ways we may have just kind of been up here on some people who've tuned in and that's not what we're trying to do. What I'm trying to explain to people is that, you know, there is a breadth and a wealth of knowledge that's out there that you can get through an eminent consulting online cannabis education program that will help make you a smarter consumer just by understanding what it is you're when you instead of going to a dispensary and saying, what should I buy? You can go to a dispensary and say, I would like to have this. And can you find me something that is in this range or is a little bit more dominant when it comes to terpenes or a little bit more dominant when it comes to CBD? Or have you heard that by adding CBG in now, because we know that CBG being the God cannabinoid, if you will, some people call it, or the stem cell cannabinoid, CBG is what turns into both CBD and THC anyway. Once a plant matures enough, it starts to go down. Well, if we look at it kind of like a stem cell, when we enhance stem cells, we get some enhancement in our medical efficacy of other forms of medicine. So does CBG enhance the CBD? If you raise the level, now, of course, if I grow a plant and I say, I want to make sure that the CBG continues to, to stay up, I got to crossbreed, 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 crossbreed to get past that six-week period of time. But maybe what I do is I go ahead and harvest a little early. What if I harvest in the five-week park and go ahead and process that plant, extracting as much of the CBG as I possibly can, and then infusing that together with another whole plant, raising the level of CBG in there along with the CBD in there, and then consume that. Hmm, what does that do? And a lot of people, I don't think, are really thinking that way when it comes to surgery. Or, you know, we also know, you know, the value of, uh, though we, we've been talking about CBD and other things, you know, THC is of value also. We understand that it has an extreme anti inflammatory response also. So, all the acid versions of our cannabinoids have a different version. And we know that THCA doesn't cause a euphoric effect unless you heat it up. So just like, you know, putting a supercharger on an engine, putting a little extra THCA might actually supercharge the bioavailable and that, you know, crossing the cellular membrane better. Again, science has got to prove this out over time, but that's the kind of research that we should be doing to figure out. Absolutely. I mean, looking at the different compounds to really begin to formulate for your own experience, that is what's going to help empower consumers and patients to be able to actually find and track patterns of the type of cannabis, whether it be the variety or the way of consumption or the compounds that will work for them. And this can all seem very overwhelming for a novice, for sure. There are so many different compounds. There are so many different experiences that they can have with these compounds in their particular ratios and combinations. And that's why I think it's so important to begin to educate and to talk about this at a kind of slow, measured pace in an engaging way that still is rooted in science so that anybody from any walk of life can really find this education accessible and that they can also maximize their therapeutic cannabis experience. I believe this is the future of the industry. The industry does not try to bring the consumer along the same way that it's been trying to bring the other businesses along because we have a lot of 
B2B workshops and a lot of B2B conventions, you know, across the country. And, and before COVID, there were there was, you know, one a month someplace. But the B2B is starting to forget the C. And the consumer is the one that's got to come up to the plate. And we know now, you know, places like Israel that consider cannabis a geriatric drug because it helps so many people as they get older wean themselves off of other medications that are so caustic to that. Americans aren't going to make that decision until they understand that this is a viable option. And the only way they're going to understand that is, you know, we're the show me country. Show me. You know, tell me. Let me figure this out for myself. And I'll agree. And, you know, whether we like it or not, as we look across what's happened in every state across this country, it's been, you know, I'm not knocking millennials and I'm not knocking younger generations, but it's been the baby boomers who have passed the legislation because a lot of them remember, well, I remember John who, you know, was one of his kids behind the dumpster, but damn, he went on to run three companies. You know, he's a successful individual. He didn't go to turn into a heroin addict. He's okay. And so I think, you know, what we've got to start doing and, and hopefully as soon as we get out of this mess of this version of the pandemic, I think as an industry, we have to start applauding and, and, putting organizations like yours up, eminent consulting, and letting people know that there's a voice out there where they can get the information they need to make a good, positive decision for their family. Um, so what's next? What do you, what do you have planned? What's, on the, what's, what's coming up in the next couple of months? Yeah, I, I just relocated temporarily down to Oklahoma City to work on a project here. The, the cannabis industry is explosive and, and wild, definitely the wild, wild west of cannabis. But um, we're trying to infuse our, our science forward model, our educational model, and, and really create a place where patients can come and, and learn more about the potential of cannabis. So that's kind of the main focus for the next few months. And Oklahoma's program is what? How are, how are they set up? It's medical, but I, I describe it as kind of like recreationally medical, considering that it is very laissez-faire, very free market. Anybody can get a patient card if they want. Um, Oklahoma has one of the highest per capita number of people who have a medical card at this point. Um, and so it's it's really moving forward at a rapid rate. And we'll probably see adult use come online in the next couple of years officially. And do they have a completely vertical setup where you have to have a grow license, a processing license, a dispensary, or you can get individual license? You can get individual license. Anybody with $2,000 and an Oklahoma driver's license can get licensed and grow cannabis out of their shed in their backyard. So it has the highest number of cannabis licenses out of any market right now, um, which, which makes it a really exciting place to be a part of. There's a lot of kind of diverse hands in the pot. And now, are they getting information from other states to see if they can avoid some of the pitfalls? Because, I mean, I hope you don't have you know, people who are growing and then using some of the most caustic extraction techniques on the planet. Uh, there, are, there are definitely those people, for sure. But um, with the group that we're working with, especially, we are kind of implementing Oregon's craft model to make sure that patients have access to high-quality um, organic methodology, cultivated cannabis, and also just really good information about what um, cannabis can do. Great. And what is the Sativa Science Club all about? So that I was a part of years ago. That was kind of my first foray into building curriculum for bud tenders. I don't believe it exists anymore. I actually left um, in 2017, but I built their first curriculum around cannabis science. 
Again, that was an effort to help train butt tenders and, and employees in the industry. Yes, exactly. And that's what you're doing now in Oklahoma, trying to, to, to educate the industry personnel. Yep. Yep. And we are also building a dispensary with our clients. So kind of twofold there. That's great. And so then let me throw out another one of those crystal ball questions, but you know, you being a part of this industry, where do you think the industry itself goes in the next two, five years? I think we're going to see a lot more states start to come online. I also think that we're going to see some movement in the federal government, hopefully toward safer banking for the industry, um, as well as decriminalization efforts. And I I think it is about time that we have some expungement of uh, cannabis records for people, that we free people from jail who have been incarcerated for cannabis crimes, and that we start to really give back economically to the group of people who have been devastated by the war on drugs. Excellent. And do you think uh, you're going to see anything in this particular administration, the new one being Biden and Harris? Do you think that they make change? I hope so. I hope so. I'm not holding my breath, but I, I really hope that they do kind of um, sway to the way of the people. And that's where if you are a part of the industry, if you're an advocate for the industry, it's really time to stand up and hold politicians and elected officials accountable for making some real structural change. Excellent. Well, her online educational program is Eminent Consulting. Go up to eminentconsulting.com to get more information and find out how you can learn and educate yourself and make really good decisions for you and your family when it comes to navigating this completely daunting space. I can't say thank you enough, Emma Chesson, for being a part of Let's Be Blunt with Montel today. And you have a home here whenever you want. Welcome back. Thank you. It was my pleasure to be here. Absolutely. Pleasure talking to you. And thank you so much for schooling so many. I really appreciate it. Make sure you tune in to the next Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Thanks for joining me on Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Please make sure you're subscribed and hit the bell to be notified when new episodes post each week. We'd love to hear your feedback also, so please send us your comments.